Please be seated. Children are dismissed to children's worship. We had a great service in the first service. We had uh, Bill Crow and Sarah Gartner come join us on our mission and vision here at Beach Haven. And I want to invite your attention to Nehemiah chapter 10 here in this text. Ladies and gentlemen, there are many places that are simply in a mess. And we need a new breed of Christian. We need a new breed of men and women who follow Jesus. We need people who are willing to risk for God. It reminds me of a thing called ultra running. Have you ever heard of ultra running? I remember several decades ago when I first heard of marathons, how there would be these uh, runners who would um, plan and actually execute a 26-mile run called a marathon. Well, these ultra runners go about four times that distance, not 26 miles, but 100 miles. They run 100 miles at a time. Can you imagine that? I mean, some of us are going to have a hard time running to lunch, but they, they run 100 miles at a time. They call it ultra running. Now, with that, there's some things that you experience that you may not anticipate. And with these ultra runners, uh, what they found out early on is that their toenails were a problem as they ran. There would be friction between their toenails and their socks and their shoes, and it would cause some heat and difficulty. So do you know what some of these ultra runners do now? They pull their toenails, all 10 of them, before they run. That's how far they're willing to go to accomplish a 100-mile run. Now, just think about that for a minute. You all cringed at that. Uh, that means you're listening. I appreciate that. But they pull their toenails. That's the extent to which they're willing to go to run 100 miles. They want to accomplish something great, and they're willing to sacrifice for it. We need today, in this day, in this dark hour, in this desperate moment, a new breed of follower of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we need people to stop thinking they can cross home plate while simultaneously keeping their foot on third base. We've got to stop. We've got to give up third base. And we've got to be willing to go to home plate and to take a risk. Ty Cobb happened to be one. I think probably Ty Cobb was the best baseball player ever to play. Pete Rose is in that category, maybe a couple of others. But Ty Cobb stole home plate 44 times in his career. That means as the pitcher wound up, he left third base and crossed home plate before the catcher could tag him out. 44 times in his baseball career. The last time he did it, he was 43 years old. Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb did not expect to cross home plate by keeping his foot on third. Beloved, he was allergic to third base. We need some Christians and followers of Christ who are allergic to third base. They are not satisfied with standing on third base. They sure aren't satisfied with first and second. They're allergic to third. They want to leave third. They won't be satisfied until they cross home plate for God in this life and do something big and great for God in the lives of other people. They are world changers, and I believe God expects every one of us and plans for every one of us to be a world changer. But it's going to take some risk. In fact, any effort that costs you nothing is something that will never accomplish anything. 
In order to accomplish something great for God, you're going to have to be willing to risk and to sacrifice and to do something that is out of the ordinary. People who play it safe never make a difference for God. Now, this is from a human perspective. The the humans will call it risk. From the divine perspective and God's perspective, it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only safe thing. So understand, I'm talking merely from a human perspective. From the human perspective, the only ones that ever accomplish something great for God are those who are willing to take a risk and are willing to engage in sacrifice. And that's what we find in Nehemiah 10 and 11. Now, they did this in chapter 10 and 11 and engaged in some very painful things in unlikely trying times because of what they knew about God in chapter 9. They rooted their risk-taking on God into the character of God. In other words, they were willing to take risks because they believed God was good and He was going to walk with them all the way. They didn't do it out of a sense of guilt. They didn't do it out of a sense of self-righteousness. They didn't do it out of a sense of self-glory. Instead, they were convinced that God was good, and verse number 31 is a summary of a lot of Nehemiah chapter 9. And chapter 9 folds into chapter 10, all right? Just because there's a chapter division here doesn't mean that there is a break in the action. But chapter 9, verse 31, uh, they summarize, or Nehemiah summarizes his prayer. He's gone from creation to Moses, Moses to Joshua, Joshua to uh, the judges' era, and from the judges' era to his own time, recounting their sin and God's rescue of them. And here's how he summarizes it in verse number 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. To summarize, God was good, so they're about to take a risk in chapter 10. In chapter 11, several risks as well. I want to assure you, listen to me carefully. Never, ever focus on the sacrifice or the risk. Never think about the risky future to which God is calling you. Never think about the sacrifice of the future to which God is calling you. Do not focus on that. Be aware, but don't focus. Focus on the goodness of God. Listen to me, sweet people. The moment you start thinking, watch this, listen. The moment you start focusing on the risk and sacrifice of the future, you have just entered the process of talking yourself out of the will of God. You've just talked yourself out. You've started talking yourself out of it. May I say to you, what happens in the future, the sacrifice, the risk, the cost, the fallout, The consequences is absolutely none of your business. That is none of your business. You can't manage that. You can't do anything with the future. There's nothing that you can control. Absolutely none of that is your business. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 and 34. Take no thought for tomorrow. And the trouble of it, it will uh, handle itself, is what Jesus said. Instead, in verse 33, he said what? Quote it with me. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Your task is to seek, and where you're out of alignment with God, you adjust yourself to Him in order to do His will. You don't worry about the risk. You don't worry about the sacrifice. You just take it and leave the consequences, the fallout, the outcomes completely to God. Your job is to do the will of God to adjust yourself to the will of God, God's job is to manage the risk and to handle your future. Your future, 
Your risk, your sacrifice, none of your business. You focus on that, you're talking yourself out of doing the will of God. That is not what they did here. That's not how the walls got built around Jerusalem. That's not how the city was rebuilt with homes. That's not how they populated it. That is certainly not how Jesus approached the cross. That is certainly not how the apostles covered up the globe with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone that wants to do something great for God has got to focus on doing what God wants him or her to do. And that's what we've got in Nehemiah chapter 10 and chapter 11. Well, uh, let's look here. Um, they rooted their risk-taking in the goodness of God. And there's several risks we can take. The first is the risk of publicity. God is good, so you can take the risk of publicity. You can go public for Him. We do that in marriage. My bride and I did that back in 1990. We went to the county courthouse of Blunt County, Tennessee, and we signed an application for a marriage license. And then we signed the marriage license immediately after we were married. We did that, and we went public with our marriage and our wedding. You do that with baptism when you follow Christ. You go public in your witness for Jesus Christ. Um, you do that anytime you join a team or you wear a polo shirt from your company. makes no difference. You go public for them. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, somebody needs to go public for God. And that's what you have here in chapter uh, 10 in verse 1. Now, the background is verse 38 of chapter 9. Look there with me. And because of all this, Nehemiah prayed. We make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. And then verse 1 of chapter 10. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor and 83 other names all the way down to verse number 27. <coughs> they pledged and they went public with God. It's precisely what they did. Hey, do you know when they were doing a capital funds raising project here at Beach Haven, back in 1968, 1969, when they built this current worship center. Do you know what they did? They had a commitment day. And I don't suggest we do this, but do you know what they did back then? They, they had a commitment day, and they gave an invitation, and every family came forward and wrote their family name and the amount they were going to give on a ledger for everyone to see. They went public with it. We don't make people's giving public in, in this day, but they put themselves on the line, and look what we're enjoying today. Look what we've got today. Ladies and gentlemen, God calls us to a public commitment. God uses people that are willing to take the risk of publicity with their commitment to Christ. For some, that might mean a change in your life and how you live, that you need to be different. In other words, you may, you may be too much like the world. You may have their values, and you've not completely embraced the values of Jesus Christ. And if you do, you're taking a risk by going public for Him. It, it may mean that at the end of the service, you make a commitment to baptism. Because you trust Christ as Savior, you need to go through the baptistry. It may be that you profess your faith today, that you come to Christ, walk down this aisle at the end of the service, and share with one of our staff members your desire to follow Jesus as Savior. It may be that you begin to share the gospel and share your own story about how Jesus changed your life. But the thing you've got to understand, if you're ever going to be used by God, you've got to take the risk of going public for Him. Jesus doesn't use secret disciples. Just doesn't. you got to go public for Him. Now, here's the good news. I don't know how others will respond to you. There'll be some that will be delighted, some will be relieved, and some will be displeased. You need to know that up front. And I'll not mislead you at all. I will not tell you that you will be universally popular, applauded, or encouraged. 
you'll probably face some opposition. But one place you will not face opposition is from God. God will walk with you every step of the way. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will walk with you. So the first risk is the risk of publicity. But there's a second, and that happens to be the risk in chapter 10 of security. Uh, Verses 38 to 31 show several risks that they ended up taking. Uh, In verse 28, they separated themselves, Nehemiah said, from the peoples of the lands. Uh, Others had moved into Israel and around Jerusalem that did not share the Jewish faith. In fact, they were in faith that were antithetical and opposed to the Jewish faith. And they said, we've got to separate ourselves from their practices. Verse 29, they they took the risk, a spiritual risk, of, of a curse and called down a curse upon themselves if they were not faithful to God. They said, these joined with their brethren, the nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. But there's a third thing, not only a social risk and a spiritual risk, but verse 30, there is a relational risk. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land. Well, you can just imagine uh, a Jewish woman marries a pagan man. Well, he's not going to follow the faith and he's not going to pass it on to the kids. So the faith is lost and the faith is diluted. So there's a, there is a relational risk. And then verse uh, number 31, there's a financial risk. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath, we wouldn't buy it from them on the Sabbath. In other words, they had no regard for the Sabbath. They would do commerce on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah says, no, we're not going to do that. The law of God says, honor, the, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that's what we're going to do. So they shut the city gates. They stopped engaging in commerce. They affected people in the pocketbook and wouldn't bend and would not yield on that point. They took risks to keep their faith secure from outside corruptive influence is what happened. Now, you know why they had to keep themselves from outside corruptive influence? Because of inside corruptive influence. The wickedness of the outside was so powerful and alluring to Israel because of the weakness inside of Israel. Every human heart wants to rebel against God. And the way to avoid that is to separate ourselves from the practice. Now, not isolate. We've got to be close to people, but far from their practices. Okay? It's a little different. We love everybody. We try to make friends with everyone. And we bring the good news to them. And we do that relationally. We're very tight with them. We want to walk with them. But when the practices arise that are wicked, we've got to separate ourselves from the practices not the people. And we do that because inside of every human heart is an idol factory, is a sin-manufacturing plant. And so whenever you put outside pressure to conform to sin with the inside corruption of our own heart, then ladies and gentlemen, you've got a combination that can cause us to fall and bring reproach to the name of Almighty God. This is what they're attempting to do. So they're trying to keep the faith and their walk with God secure precisely because of the corruption that was in the heart that is allured and invited and enticed by the wickedness in the world. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm really, really concerned about that interplay between outside wickedness and inside weakness. 
The truth is, our world has become awful in many ways in the way it uses language. One of the best things that could happen to the United States of America is for someone to cancel Twitter. It's awful. I can't hardly stand to look at it. We've contemplated here at Beach Haven coming up with our own Twitter page, but it, it is just so corruptive, more corruptive than most of the other social media platforms. Now, I've got a Twitter handle, and I use it on occasion, but I can't hardly stand to scroll through it and to read it. The hyper-criticism. And then there's some churches where they start criticizing their church in there. It's just an awful thing. Let me read something to you that Adrian Rogers said about keeping your church secure. I want you to watch this carefully on the screen. He said, not only is it your job to attend your church, it's your job to defend your church. You ought to commend your church. You ought to love the church. Let the criticism come from the devil's crowd. Let it come from those outside. Don't criticize the church. Love the church. The church is not perfect. Now watch this. As a matter of fact, it's a society of sinners who finally realized it. Did you know that? It's the only organization I know of that you have to profess to be bad before you can join. So ladies and gentlemen, you've got to understand, that is exactly what churches are. People should no more criticize their church for having sinners in it than they should criticize a hospital for having sick people in it. Amen? That is what we are. And, and we're just a bunch of redeemed sinners. And we're telling others where to find the grace of God. And so that's how we keep ourselves secure. We've got to take the risk of security, and we will find God to be our stronghold, shield, and defense. But there's a third risk, and that's the risk of generosity. God is good, so you can take the risk of generosity. I heard of this evangelist that was traveling a couple generations ago by boat from the United States to Europe. He had just had surgery and then went on this long trip across the Atlantic. It was uncomfortable for him. He was recovering from surgery. He had some wounds and incisions, and he went through the difficulty of the trip, and he didn't book a first-class ticket or a second-class ticket. He booked a third-class ticket. And somebody said, why did you book a third-class ticket? He said, because there wasn't a fourth-class. He was very careful with his spending so he could fund the work of the gospel in his world and through his ministry. Well, that's the same spirit that is found in verse 32 through verse 39. Look at verse 32. There's one thing that they did. We made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. And so they actually imposed a tax upon worshipers as they came to the temple to keep up the temple. It was, one, it was actually started off as a half they brought it back to one-third because times were very hard, and then they returned it to one-half a shekel by the time Jesus showed up. But look at verse number 34. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood of the offering into the house of God. Well, there were some poor folks that couldn't do more, but they could collect wood, and they could bring wood to help the perpetual fires burn. There was always a fire burning in the temple to the honor and glory of God, and so there had to be wood constantly in the temple, and so the poor folks could gather and bring wood. So there was an opportunity for them to give. Then in verse 35, there's another thing they did. We made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of the trees and then of their cattle and their livestock. And so the very first produce they had from the barn or the field would be given unto God. And then in verse 35, 
7 and verse 38, they tithed. So they have these four opportunities for giving. Their tithe, their first fruits, uh, their wood, and their shekel or their temple tax. They took the risk of generosity. And folks, times were hard. They were just rebuilding the financial and commercial infrastructure of Jerusalem and their world, and they were just getting started. And so times are very, very tough. But what these poor people, these struggling people did is that they cut back to give more. Is precisely what they did. They are generous in their spirit. And I want to assure you, I want to assure you, You get a hold of Romans chapter 8 and verse number 32, it's going to change your life. It says there, He who did not spare his own son, speaking of God, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? There's a greater than, lesser than argument there. If God gave the greater gift of Jesus at the cross, then everything else he gives us is a piece of cake. The biggest and most difficult gift, if I can put it that way, that God has ever given is His Son on the cross for our sins. If God would go to that extent to save our souls, all the other gifts, all the lesser gifts, because Jesus is the greater gift, all the lesser gifts are a piece of cake for God. Do you know what that means? That means this. You can never ever out give God. You will never, ever do it. In fact, God will make sure it never happens. God will thoroughly and completely watch over every detail of your life and make sure that as you do His will, you will always have His supply. That is precisely what God does. God comes through for those who will serve him. And that's why we're excited about November the 17th, our missions banquet. Our missions committee and stewardship committee are rolling out a new way of giving to missions in that time. And we love to give to that here at Beach Haven. So God is good so we can risk generosity and security and publicity. But then in the fourth place, God is good so we can risk humility. I don't know if they told you or not, but when you became a Christian, there's something that happened you may not have been aware of. And that is, when you became a Christian, you lost the right to think about yourself. All of your attention was to shift from self to God's will. When I was young, I was taught that. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 were repeated constantly and frequently when I was younger. I don't hear that much anymore, and I haven't heard it in a long time from others. But there Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. You are not your own. Say that with me. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Say that. You were bought with a price. Say the whole thing with me. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is God's. So we were purchased. We are owned by God. We are owned by God. And so the fallout from doing God's will in the future, the risk, the sacrifice, none of our business. Our business is to glorify God 
by obeying Him. Now, I want to show you something painful here in the text that you may not notice unless you read it real carefully. In chapter 11, it happens, and the rest of the chapter explains it. But I want you to notice what's happened here. Let me explain the background here. They built the walls around Jerusalem. They've rebuilt homes. And the only people living in the city of Jerusalem is the Chamber of Commerce. Okay, The 5th century B.C. form of the Chamber of Commerce. That's all. Other than that, the city is empty. What's happened is that the city has been rubble before and everyone's moved to the suburbs. They have engaged in flight from the city. And so through the generations, they have built up estates. They built up commerce. They built up business in these small towns, hamlets, and villages. They've got their farms. They've got their livestock. But they need the city populated. The city's got to be populated. Well, the Chamber of Commerce has come back to the city, but it's still vastly empty. And look what happens in uh, chapter uh, 11 and verse number 1. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The Chamber of Commerce, the leaders of the people, dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring out of ten, one out of ten, to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths dwelt in other towns, villages, hamlets, and cities. Jerusalem was not a desirable place to live. It had a wall, which means it needed it. There, was, there were realities inside that needed protection and the protection of a wall. And so the walls would attract raiders and marauders, thieves and bandits, opposing armies. So those walls, the large city, the beauty of the city, the temple and all that went on there would attract hostile attention. No one wants to live there. And, and, and we've had something similar in the United States. There is a reason why the terrorist attack of 9-11 happened in New York City and not Bogart. Does that make sense? So no one wants to live there. And do you see what happened? After the Chamber of Commerce moved back there, they engaged in a selection process where they took 10% of the remaining population and drafted them to move into the city to lead their estates, to leave their commerce, to leave their villages, to leave their life, and to move into the city so that Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom of God, might be populated. And I'm sure they may not have been like a lot of people that we know, because look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. They were drafted, and they willingly went in, no whining and no complaining. In other words, they had a life in the suburbs. The people wanted them to move into the city, and they were willing to do it. Do you know why? Because they were humble enough to be taught something different. They were humble enough to bow themselves before the wishes, ideas, concepts, dreams, and vision of someone else. There was not a single contrarian amongst them at all. They were all yielded and bowed down. They were willing to pull together to make this dream in Jerusalem happen. And beloved, that's the kind of person that God uses. God uses the person who is humble enough to be taught something. God uses the person who sees where God wants him 
notices how he differs from the will of God and is willing to realign himself and change and new, learn something new in order to be used of God. In other words, preserving one's own opinion, preserving one's own view, preserving one's own preferences and conviction is not the priority of the Christian life but instead to make whatever change God wants us to make that we might be used of God. That is the Christian life. Everything else is fake religion. And ladies and gentlemen, what we've got to have today is a new breed of people who are willing to give their all to God and to be used completely and fully by Him and not be satisfied until every area of life is yielded and bowed uh, down before the King of kings. And nothing else will satisfy us until we've done the will of God. The risk of humility. The risk of humility. Let me put it to you this way. After considering all the examples in the Scripture, after considering all the promises of the Scripture, after considering all the threats of disobedience, let me make this statement. The biggest risk in your life is not doing the will of God. That's not your biggest risk. The biggest risk you and I face is avoiding risk to do the will of God. That is our biggest risk. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. If he sows to the flesh, he reaps corruption. He sows to the Spirit eternal life. The biggest risk you and I face is not aligning ourselves and changing to do the will of God with all the accompanying risks. The biggest risk we face is not taking a risk on God because God's in it. God wants us to do it. God wants us to follow His will and His Word. For some of you, that risk today would be just to finally break down and admit, you know what, things are not right between me and God. I really need to get this right. I need to bow before Him. I've been living my own life, and I'm ready to abandon everything from before today, and I'm willing to turn completely to what He wants. Acts 20 uh, 21 says that Paul preached repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're willing to do that because Jesus bled and rose again. You can trust this God who would give His Son for you. Others of you need to follow Him in church membership or baptism. Some of you need to realign your life in some other areas of life. Do your marriage and your family, your life, your priorities, your vocation, everything different. But I want to say to you, please, please, sweet people, go with God no matter the risk because the greatest risk is not going with God at all. Oh, friend, please come. Please give it all to Him. Please bow it all before Him. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And I want us to pray about it. And I'm going to ask you, God, to bless you real good today that you might give your all to Him. Father in heaven, thank you for the good news of the Word. Thank you that you've made it abundantly clear what we are to do.